Well, please turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 29. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 29. Here in this passage, the author to the Hebrews is contrasting old covenant worship to new covenant worship. And the contrast that he makes here is really the contrast between two mountains, Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 29. Please pay careful attention for this is God's holy and inspired word given to us this morning. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, And the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised. Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please look with me in your order of worship at the confessional reading element. This morning we'll be confessing together Heidelberg Catechism question and answer 103, which is an exposition of the fourth commandment. This question and answer has to do with what God wills for us and our worship services in the new covenant and thus is very much connected to Hebrews chapter 12 and um, what New Covenant should look like. As always, I will read the question if you all would respond by reciting the answer. Question 103 asks, What is God's will for you in the fourth commandment? First, that the gospel ministry and schools for it be maintained, and that especially on the festive day of rest, I diligently attend the assembly of God's people to learn what God's word teaches, to participate in the sacraments, 
to pray to the Lord publicly and to bring Christian offerings for the poor. Second, that every day of my life I rest from my evil ways. Let the Lord work in me through his spirit and so begin in this life the eternal Sabbath. Let's pray and ask that the Lord would bless his word for us this morning. Merciful Father, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in your book of creation, that most elegant book in which all creatures serve as character signs and symbols of your power, your justice, your glory, and your existence. Oh Lord, we pray uh, and thank you in this moment that you've also revealed yourself to us in, uh, in Holy Scripture and that through your providence you have preserved uh, your revelation, this form of your revelation to us so that we can be here in this moment and, and learn the Christian faith, the Christian faith that has been once delivered to all the saints. May your spirit be present, giving us ears to hear and eyes to see that we might not merely hear and read, but that we might inwardly digest your word for our edification and growth. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, boys and girls, um, as you know, in our first service, we are called each Lord's Day uh, to do something with our hearts and with our mouths. We're called to do something with our hearts and with our mouths. What, what are we called to do with our hearts and mouths? Wyatt? Believe and confess. Yes, we are called to believe, as Paul says in Romans 10, believe that Jesus is Lord and confess with our mouths that God raised him from the dead. Well, we believe and confess that God is what? What is God? Uh, Lillian? Oh, two Lillians in unison. That's great. Yes, single, simple, and spiritual. Um, Two Lillians and two Eleanors, yes. Um, God is single, simple, and spiritual. Well, how do we come to know this single, simple, and spiritual being called God? How do we come to know God? Eleanor? Creation and Scripture. Yes, these two books, Creation and Scripture. And speaking of Scripture or the Bible, what is the Bible? What are those three attributes of the Bible? Violet? Authoritative, sufficient, and inspired. Because the Bible is inspired, it's God-breathed, therefore it is both authoritative and sufficient. Well, the Bible begins, or doesn't begin, but, but the whole substance of the Bible is about God as revealed as our triune God. So what is the Trinity? What is the Trinity? Isaiah? One essence and three persons. At the beginning of our Bibles, our triune God created. What do we believe about creation? What do we believe about creation? What do we believe? Ezekiel? Created out of nothing. Yes, ex nihilo creation. God created all things from nothing. Uh, What do we believe about providence? God didn't just create all things and let creation be by itself. He continues to have a relationship with creation. That's what we, uh, that's the doctrine of providence. So what do we believe about providence? What do we believe about providence? Matthias? 
Exactly. Nothing comes by chance, but everything proceeds from the hand of our loving Heavenly Father. He continues to not only, he, he didn't just create all things, he continues to govern all things. Very good. Um, what do we believe about original sin? After God created um, Adam and Eve, they didn't continue in that state of perfection. What happened? They sinned, and we call that original sin. What effect does that original sin have on us? What effect does that original sin have on us? Violet? Sinned we all, yes. We essentially sinned with Adam. In Adam's sin, sinned we all. His, his sin has consequences for the many. Uh, we have corrupt natures, and we continue to be guilty. Well, th- as you know, we have been taking a break from the Belgian Confession and um, are in this series where I'm explaining why we've made the transition from me wearing a suit and tie to a Genevan gown. A number of weeks ago, I said that we should consider this issue through the lens of the category of purposeful freedom. Purposeful freedom. What pastors wear during corporate worship on Sundays is an area of freedom. It's a circumstance of worship. Meaning God has not told us in his word what pastors should wear during stated services. Much in the same way God has not told us what instrument should accompany congregational singing piano, organ, guitar, some other instrument? He's not told us. He's not told us whether you should be sitting in a pew or a chair. These are circumstances of worship. They're areas of freedom. Nevertheless, we are called to be purposeful as we make decisions within these areas of freedom, within the circumstances of worship. What do I mean by purposeful? Well, we are to make decisions that best represent and reflect what we believe as a Reformed church. It's our belief as a consistory that the Genevan gown best represents what we believe as a Reformed church and thus is the most purposeful attire or mode of dress that I can wear. Now why or how? How does it represent what we believe? How is it the most purposeful option? Well, we considered how the robe represents our Catholicity. As the historic dress of Protestant pastors, it ties us, it roots us to the historic Christian church. We considered last week how the gown de-emphasizes the individuality of the man and emphasizes the office of the pastor. Today we're going to consider how the robe signifies or represents new covenant heavenly worship, the type of worship that um, the author of the Hebrews describes here in Hebrews chapter 12. Now, the pastor's clothing sets the tone for the worship service. If you visit a church, as soon as you see what the pastor's wearing, you probably will have a pretty good indication what type of service um, is going to be conducted. The pastor's dress, in in, uh, certain ways, does set the tone for the worship service. And so we're going to consider this morning first the nature of corporate worship according to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 29, the nature of new covenant corporate worship according to Hebrews 12, and then second, we're going to consider how the gown represents or signifies this type of worship. So first, what is the nature of worship? What is the nature of corporate worship? Well, here in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 29, the author is contrasting two types of worship. Old covenant worship versus new covenant worship. uh, Earthly worship 
versus heavenly worship, or worship at the foot of Mount Sinai versus worship at the top of Mount Zion. This is the contrast that he is making. In verses 18 through 21, then the author is describing this old covenant earthly worship at Mount Sinai. You'll see in verse 18, the author says to these Christians that he's writing to, he says, you have not come to what may be touched. Here the author is saying that old covenant worship could be touched. It was, it was sensual in the sense that it appealed to our senses. It, it, uh, it was earthly and earthy. It consisted of this great temple and all of its beautiful adornments. It considered of it, it, it consisted of elaborate vestments that the Levitical priests wore as they did their work in the Old Covenant sanctuary. It consisted of complex rituals and cleansings and sacrifices. It was very earthly and earthy. You could say that these earthly aspects of Old Covenant worship were not elements of worship. They were, uh, I mean, they were not circumstances of worship, but they were elements of worship. Uh, Israel did not have the freedom to construct the temple however they wanted to construct the temple. We today have freedom when it comes to what our building looks like. Israel did it. They had to build that temple exactly according to the blueprint that Moses received from the top of Mount Sinai. Levitical priests did not have freedom when it came to what they wore while they were doing their duties in the temple. God told them exactly what their vestments were to be like. These earthly elements were, were elements. They were of the substance of Old Covenant worship. Old Covenant worship could be touched. Well, the author continues and says that Old Covenant worship also struck fear in the hearts of worshipers. Old Covenant worship struck fear in the hearts of worshipers. Here in verses 18 through 21, the author is alluding to Exodus 19 and 20 and says that at Mount Sinai, God revealed himself in a tempest and a great fire and even darkness. Now at Mount Sinai, when Israel was gathered at Mount Sinai, Mount Sinai had essentially three parts to it. The bottom, the middle, and the top. Not, not very complicated. The bottom, the middle, and the top. All Israel in a pure state could be at the bottom of Mount Sinai. But... If even a beast touched the mountain, God would break out against it. They could be at the bottom of the mountain, but they could not touch the mountain. Well, Moses, Aaron, his sons, the priests, and the 70 elders, they could go halfway up the mountain. But only Moses could go to the top and receive revelation from God. This tripartite construction of Sinai is reflected in the tabernacle as well. In the tabernacle, all Israel in a pure state could be in the courtyards, just as all Israel in a pure state could be at the bottom of Mount Sinai. The priests could minister in the holy place, just as Moses, Aaron, his sons, and the 70 elders could go halfway up Mount Sinai. But only the high priest, and he but once a year could go into the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant resided, just as only Moses could go to the very top of Mount Sinai. So you can see that Mount Sinai was symbolic of the whole Old Covenant temple system. 
It was symbolic of Old Covenant worship. Old Covenant worship then had the effect of reminding the people of God's holiness and their sinfulness. Israel, whether they be at Sinai or later on with the tabernacle or temple, the Israelites knew that they could only get so close to God. And if they went beyond their, their proper limits, they would be consumed. God is holy and we are sinful. This system did a great job of catechizing the Israelites in these two great truths. Furthermore, this system also then had the effect of striking fear in the hearts of the worshipers. You better be in a state of purity. You better have done your rituals and you better not be too close to the temple beyond your station and capacity. Now, of course, God made a provision through this system for their salvation. It was through this system that the Israelites were reminded of Christ, reminded that they needed a better sacrifice, a better priest, a better temple. But nevertheless, this system had the effect of striking fear in the hearts of the worshipers. This is earthly old covenant worship at Mount Sinai. Now, in verse 22, the author transitions. He says, But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Again, the author is speaking to Jewish Christians who are contemplating going back to the Old Covenant, contemplating going back to Sinai and that which can be touched, that which is earthly. He's saying to them, Why would you go back? You've come to Zion. You've come to the city of the living God. You've come to the heavenly Jerusalem. Why would you go back to the types and shadows? Now, Mount Zion was the hill upon which Jerusalem and the temple was constructed. Now, you may recall in the book of Genesis, God gave the promise to Abram that he and his family would inherit the land of Canaan, in which Zion and Jerusalem and the temple would one day dwell. Now, Abram, according to Hebrews 11, when he received this promise, he wasn't ultimately looking for a piece of real estate in the Near East. What was he looking for? He was looking for the heavenly Jerusalem, the heavenly Mount Zion, the heavenly land of Canaan. Abram recognized that the land of Canaan was just a shadow of a greater reality, and that reality was the new creation. The author here then isn't speaking about the earthly Mount Zion in Jerusalem. The author here is speaking about what that earthly Mount Zion signifies, namely the heavenly Mount Zion, where God dwells in his seventh-day Sabbath rest. Furthermore, in Exodus 19 through 24 and following, Moses receives on Mount Sinai a blueprint of the temple or the tabernacle. In fact, he gets a vision of the heavenly tabernacle, and he is to construct the earthly tabernacle as a replica of the heavenly tabernacle. Now, what happens when we transition from the old covenant to the new covenant is that our worship is translated into heaven. In the new covenant, our worship is translated into heaven. In the old covenant, Israel needed to worship in a specific locale, namely, wherever the tabernacle or temple dwelt. Now, in the new covenant, our worship is not tied to a specific locale or location or building. 
Why? Because our worship has been translated into heaven. We are worshiping in the reality of the temple. So when you receive the call to worship on the Lord's day, you are being called to ascend the spiritual Mount Zion. You're not called to go to the land of Canaan and worship um, um, in Jerusalem where the temple once dwelt. You know, you are called up the spiritual Mount Zion to approach God in his heavenly holy of holies. When Jesus died, the, the curtain of the old covenant tabernacle tore in two. This symbolized this transition from old covenant worship to new covenant worship. It symbolized that we no longer need to worship God in a specific locale. And it also symbolized that we now are able to boldly approach God and his heavenly holy of holies through the mediation of Christ. That is what's absolutely distinctive about new covenant worship. Now notice who's present in a new covenant worship service. The author says that when we are called to worship, we are gathering in the midst of the angels in festal gathering. Uh, we are gathering in the presence of the church of the firstborn. We are gathering in the presence of the righteous or the spirits of the righteous. We are gathering the presence of God who is judge of all, a God who revealed himself at Sinai in a great tempest and fire and darkness. And we are gathering in the presence of Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant whose blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Abel's blood cried out for justice to be satisfied. Christ's blood cries out justice has been satisfied for all my people. Jesus' blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Old covenant worship reminded the people of God's holiness and their sin and why they were unworthy of drawing near to God as he dwelt in the old covenant temple. New covenant worship reminds us that we have been made righteous and worthy through Christ who is our mediator, so that we can boldly and joyfully and confidently approach God who is judge of all. This is new covenant heavenly worship at the top of Mount Zion. Well, in verses 25 through 29, then, the author is sort of applying this teaching. And, and again, he, he calls these Christians to see how ludicrous it would be for them to go back. And if, if Israel is judged for rejecting old covenant worship, how much greater would the penalty be for, for us to, to, to reject this heavenly new covenant worship? And then he talks about how just as the old covenant was, was shaken into oblivion, so too God will shake this present earth and these present heavens, and only that which cannot be shaken will remain. Well, what cannot be shaken? Well, the kingdom of God. We have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. The only thing that we have confidence or certainty that will be immediately translated into the new creation are the church and our bodies. Both of those are, are very much connected. The church and our bodies. Beyond that, we have no guarantee of anything in this present creation being directly or immediately translated into the new creation. We have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Verse 29, then, the author 
or 28 and 29, the author then calls his original audience to worship, to respond appropriately to this, this description of new covenant worship. He says, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. The author here is, is saying that we, as New Covenant Christians, are called to this heavenly worship. We are to respond to this call to worship by offering up acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Reverence and awe should mark our worship together. That is how our worship is made acceptable, or part of the way in which our worship is made acceptable. Now, it is my argument that the Genevan gown best represents or reflects this description of heavenly new covenant worship. This worship at the top of the heavenly Mount Zion. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, wait a minute. Doesn't the Genevan gown actually do the opposite? Doesn't it signify old covenant worship? And through the Genevan gown, aren't we doing the exact opposite of what the author is warning us to do? Because the Levitical priests wore robes or gowns or vestments. And so are we actually contradicting what the author is saying here in Hebrews 12? Very important to know that the Genevan gown is not a continuation of the Levitical vestments, uh, the vestments of, of the Levitical priests. The Genevan gown is not a continuation of the vestments of the Levitical priests. You may have noticed that throughout this series, I've not once turned to the book of Exodus and had us consider God's very specific instructions for the vestments of the Levitical priests. Why? Because we're not seeking to replicate that. We're not seeking to continue that. That's old covenant earthly worship. We are called up the heavenly and spiritual Mount Zion. In fact, this is what separates the Genevan gown from Roman Catholic vestments. Roman Catholic vestments, according to the understanding of the church in Rome, they're seeking to be a continuation of the vestments of the Levitical priesthood. And so, Roman Catholic vestments... Uh, or through Roman Catholic vestments, Rome is, is returning to the types and shadows, returning to the Old Covenant, contradicting what the author is calling us to do here. Again, it's very important to know that the Genevan gown is not a continuation of the vestments of the Levitical priesthood. So then how? How does the Genevan gown represents or signify this type of worship that Hebrews 12 describes. Well, my, my former pastor from seminary, uh, Reverend Danny Hyde, he's a, the pa a pastor of another URC church in California. This is what he says in his short book on worship. He says that the robe emphasizes that we do not identify ourselves with the spirit of the age. The robe emphasizes that we do not identify ourselves with the spirit of the age. Uh, last week, we thought about this for a little bit, but you know, the suit and tie implicitly ties myself and, and, and uh, our church to upper middle class professionalism. Informal attire also implicitly ties a church to non-professionalism, maybe the blue collar demographic or informal entertainment culture. 
The robe, however, allows us as a church to communicate that we do not draw our existence, our nourishment, our identity from anything in our present culture. We do not identify with the spirit of the age. Well, he continues, he says, the robe focuses the congregation on the work of Christ and apostolic doctrine, which transcend all cultures. Now, you could add to this quote and say that the robe also should focus our minds upon this heavenly new covenant worship. Now, if someone comes in and looks at me in a gown and says, that seems really weird and strange, that might be a good thing. We today as a church, we, we may have sought to identify ourselves too closely with 21st century Western culture. It may be a good thing if people walk into our church and it feels a little otherworldly. It feels as if it doesn't quite jibe with what's in and hip in our current culture. Our culture, our worship should transcend any given cultural moment. Why? Because of what the author to the Hebrews is saying here in Hebrews 12. We are being called to worship God in his heavenly holy of holies. And so, yes, there's an air of simplicity to our worship, but through that simplicity, something absolutely extraordinary is happening. We are gathering the presence of angels, those who've gone before us, God the judge of all, and Jesus the mediator of the new covenant. And therefore, the gown, the Genevan gown, represents this type of new covenant heavenly worship. Now, C.S. Lewis uh, has a great quote. He, he once said in an introduction to one of his books, he, uh, he says that the modern habit of doing ceremonial things unceremoniously is no proof of humility. Rather, it proves the worshiper's inability to forget himself in the right and his readiness to spoil for everyone else the proper place of ritual. Let me say that again. The modern habit of doing ceremonial things unceremoniously is no proof of humility rather it proves the worshiper's inability to forget himself in the right and his readiness to spoil for everyone else the proper place of ritual what lewis is saying here is that there is this trend in our modern world in this age you could say of expressive individualism where we take ceremonial things right traditions rituals that have been developed over centuries that have been scrutinized over and to do them unceremoniously we see this in the church we see this through churches removing historic liturgies for a praise band Uh, we see this uh, in the church when they seek to remove all written prayers in place of all spontaneous and extemporaneous prayers we see this in churches as we remove the historic language that the church has used to introduce the Lord's Supper with a spontaneous message from the pastor. Uh, we see this also in modes of dress. It's a modern trend for pastors to wear very informal attire, to do ceremonial, ceremonial things in an unceremonious way. What Lewis is saying here is that expressive individualism has bled into the church. When we apply what he's saying here to the church, he's essentially saying that the church has been infiltrated by expressive individualism. Uh, This this dynamic of trying to do ceremonial things unceremoniously is not a proof of humility. It's It's actually a way in which we try to draw attention to ourselves. 
where we try to express ourselves in a way that's authentic. So Lewis is very much ahead of his, his time as he's, he's writing this, and it's a very, I think, apt reminder for us as we consider this topic. So again, the Genevan gown, again, is one way in which we can do ceremonial things in a ceremonious way. Now, this is the last sermon in this series. And so as we move towards the conclusion, again, I want to remind you that this issue is an area of freedom, which means I don't want us to look down upon other churches who make different decisions than we do on this issue. In fact, in our own federation of churches, we have, we have um, many churches who, 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 uh, whose pastors wear the Jeevan gowns. We have a lot of churches whose pastors wear a suit and tie. Um, so we shouldn't think that we're somehow more reformed or more biblical or uh, we have better worship because I'm wearing the Genevan gown. It's an area of freedom, and we need to embrace that. Nevertheless, it's still a purposeful area of freedom. And so there are options that are more or less purposeful. And we can have healthy discussions and debates about that, just as we can have healthy discussions about what, what is the best instrument um, to employ for our congregational singing. Again, it's the area of freedom, but God's word doesn't tell us, but we can have healthy debates and discussions about some instruments being more suited for corporate worship than others. So that's the category in which we are to think about ministerial dress. I've made the case that the Genevan gown is the most purposeful option. It best reflects what we believe. Why? Again, as I said before, it represents the Catholicity of the church. It's the historic dress of Protestant pastors, and thus it intentionally ties us to those who've gone before us. It's purposeful because it de-emphasizes the individuality of the man, and it emphasizes the office of the pastor. There are things that no one here can do except me, namely to preach the word and administer the sacraments. The gown signifies that. In a very similar way, um, as uniforms and other professions function to emphasize the specific callings and office of members of those vocations. And now today we consider how the gown uh, signifies, represents this heavenly new covenant worship. This moment is a holy moment, a moment that even transcends our cognition to understand what's going on. Again, the gown signifies that. As we conclude... We, uh, we as human beings, we really have two parts to who we are. There's the visceral, emotional, intuitive side to us, and there's the rational side of us. And it's an interesting question to think about. Uh, an interesting question to think about is whether or not your visceral emotions and reactions and intuitions are in service to your reason, or whether your reason is in service to your visual, visceral emotions, reactions, and intuitions. Now, we all have had different visceral reactions to the gown. For some of you, uh, it's been negative. For others of you, it's been positive. Others of you might be indifferent. But we all have different visceral reactions to when you see me in, in the gown. One of the aims of this series was for us to be able to lay aside our visceral reactions and emotional response to this attire and for us to be able to think objectively, rationally, biblically, and historically about this issue. So regardless of what your opinion is on, on the Genevan gown, I, I hope that at the very least you can see that this transition is a purposeful transition. We are intentionally trying to take seriously 
uh, the principles that we find in God's word and that we confess together in the creeds and confessions of this church. Let's pray.